Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. Uh, I'm Mike Kuhn, uh, joined by Olga Malinkovic, a uh, professor in electrical and computer engineering here at the University of Illinois, uh, postdoc Ryan Gabris, um, and Hussein Yazdi, a graduate student uh, under Professor Malinkovic. And uh, we're excited to talk about uh, your DNA data storage project. Um, and so I, I guess first off, just talk about where the idea came for um, storing data on DNA, how far back it went, and sort of the beginning of, of uh, this great project for you. So personally, I would like to attribute the idea to Richard Feynman, who basically came up with uh, the notion of doing uh, manipulation of uh, molecules and uh, macromolecules for the purpose of computing and storage. He came up with this idea in the 60s. He presented it in a now famous talk. But uh, the ideas took off much, much later. So there were some ideas on the area of DNA-based data storage from Arizona uh, in the early 2000s, but that was at the time when the DNA sequencing project came to an end at the staggering cost of $3 billion for sequencing one genome. So people really didn't believe that it will be ever plausible to store information in DNA because the readout process was insanely expensive. But only in 2013 and um, 2012 did the work become, become more serious because the cost of synthesis and sequencing went down orders and orders of magnitude. And two groups, one at uh, Harvard, MIT, and the other one in uh, Europe uh, at the European Bioinformatics Institute, proposed uh, DNA as a storage media. And that is basically four years, five years ago, and that's when all the excitement started in the modern age, I would say. I mean, the fact that there is so much data to be stored, exponentially more so today than maybe there were 10, 20 years ago, did that have a lot to do with this sort of acceleration of, of this idea? Of course, yeah. You, you probably all heard the buzzword big data. It's everywhere, social science. Uh, it's in uh, astronomy, physics. The um, uh, uh, media, online media, are collecting so much data. Hollywood, as we saw in the very latest issue of IEEE Spectrum, our engineering magazine, is complaining that archival movie storage has become a huge problem and they're almost regretting going digital <laughs> because the costs of maintenance and it's fascinating that one of the group members of uh, of uh, the Harvard MIT team is actually working with Technicolor on trying to use DNA as a storage media for movies and I think it was reported uh, a, about a year ago that Technicolor has a voyage to the moon in DNA with million copies now. So yes, it's the big data problem that is pe pressing everyone to move into this area. Well, why don't you give our listeners an idea of your background, how you got involved in the project, and uh, you know what led you to, to uh, be involved in, in this exciting venture? So we are all here coding theorists. To begin with, we started our career as coding theorists. and. Uh, Coding theory played an indispensable role for making all the current storage media work uh, very efficiently and in a robust way. And uh, the area of coding theory has really made it possible to have CDs perform the way they do. And we always, again, bring up our favorite coding theorist, uh, um, Imink, 
uh, into the discussion because that's the book uh, recording for um, coding for digital recorders that got all of us in some sense excited and started to work many, many years ago, at least in my case, on uh, uh, coding theory. And then when we saw that a new media came out and we are closely monitoring what kind of recording media are coming out, we realized that there are really exciting new questions in coding theory and in system design and implementation that given our background, we could address in a, in a nice and in hopefully intelligent way. So talk about the backing that you have um, and just the uh, the resources that you have on the University of Illinois campus here to, to be able to, to tackle this project. So we just came back from a meeting with our collaborator, Hui Min Zhao, who is in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the chemistry department. <coughs> so he was... Uh, involved in our first demonstration of a rewritable and random access um, DNA-based data storage system. And that was a great experience to work with people across campus because uh, combining our coding schemes and the solutions for data access and the synthetic biology tools that he has mastered, it was really, really exciting. It's interdisciplinary research at its most exciting, in my opinion. So Ryan, for uh, those of us that maybe don't understand um, why DNA, how does it work? What is it about DNA that allows for this uh, massive capability of data storage? Yeah, I'm, DNA is uh, it's an amazing uh, medium on which to store data. Uh, first of all, you can store data basically forever. Um, we can still recover DNA of like, you know, different animals from hundreds of thousands of, uh, uh, you know, in the past. And what's amazing about that is that you think about today's storage systems and you have to constantly power them. You know, you have to like run like redundancy checks, you have to correct errors. These, if you store something within uh, DNA, I mean, it could potentially be stored for hundreds of thousands of years where you're not doing any of that work. Um, so there's an amazing cost savings. The other thing too is DNA is one of the densest things at least I've ever seen. Um, we've heard, there's a lot of different statistics out there, but the latest I heard is you could store all the world's, world's data within a teaspoon, I think it was, of uh, DNA, which is just amazing. I heard um, it was a trunk of a car so last yeah, time was, I it checked. Was too, <laughs> yeah. It was a trunk of a car, that's the one I heard too, but then when I, I Googled it not that long ago and I thought I saw like a teaspoon or something. So the bottom line is the storage density is unlike anything we've ever seen before. So if big data actually is, you know, is something that we're trying to tackle, I think DNA is, uh, it, it's definitely uh, unique um, in that it offers uh, densities that we've never seen before. So. So uh, talk a little bit about what exists now and what, um, what you know, how, how do you transition, as, assuming this uh, successfully works out, how, how, how do you uh, transition from where we are storing data now into storing it on DNA? Um, just talk about that, what that process could look like. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't think we entirely have all that worked out right now. Uh, archival storage is kind of the one use case that we're targeting just because as of right now, the way the technology is sort of going is that, um, you know, to sequence DNA takes a lot longer than it would to maybe read something back from like a, a flash drive, uh, for instance. Um, so right now, the, the cost of writing as well as the speed of reading back the data uh, is probably in a place where I think archival storage is the one use case that we could, could potentially look at. So... So talk a little bit about, how about quality, and I'll address Hussein here. What, uh, one of the things that when we 
you store, whether it be to a cloud or to an external hard drive or to whatever, you're worried about what's going to happen 20 years from now. Um, will the quality, especially when you, when you talk about movies and audio and images, um, what, what kind of assurance that the quality will still be the same down, down in the future? Uh, in terms of quality, actually one of the main benefits of like DNA-based data storage systems is that they're really they're that like they're robust against so many errors that we see on like other platforms. So and the uh, cost for for storage storage cost is very cheap compared to other platform. For example, you can see recover DNA strings and the like human genomes for or like other species from like hundred years ago, hundred thousand years ago. So that shows a really good case and a good platform to store like to store data that you want to store let's say thousand years from now and that's uh, that's why we like the the whole thing is about storing data that you don't want to access them very frequently like we have right now with flash storage mm -hmm. or magnetic disk and the thing that the and your data the, so the case here is like archival storage that you don't want to access them so frequently and you want to use them later for for like let's say next generations and also as Ryan mentioned the density is very high compared to other platforms like for flash storage it's like 10 to, 10 to the 12 bytes per <coughs> inch squared but for DNA we have like 10 to the 20 bytes per gram which is like pretty huge yeah. also for the the overall co the main problem here is the uh, the cost actually the whole cost the synthesis cost and the sequencing cost recently like the past few years this the sequencing cost drops really fast but the main problem right now is the synthesis cost that so that's why we can't compete like in terms of like with other technologies like flash storage or magnetic disk like every other search platform that we have. But in terms of data integrity and, uh, and readout prices, they're kind of like uh, we can co compete with other technologies. So I know recently, big breakthrough from your group in terms mm -hmm. of uh, advancing this technology. Just talk about uh, where you are right now. Um, what's the What's the competitive landscape, and uh, you know how close are we to to having this uh, be a reality? So everybody said that, was, and I don't want to repeat it that the cost is an issue. But um, I think our group stood out in at least in my opinion uh, because we had a very unique approach to the problem that comes from our background in storage techniques and coding for storage techniques. So our group was the first one to implement a system that really allows you to have random access. Because before uh, we did the work with Huimin uh, Zhao's lab and Jian um, Ma, who left for Carnegie Mellon, unfortunately, was that uh, uh, there was no capability of selecting very specific parts of the information for readout. It was all read together, which was a huge drawback, both, both in terms of cost, time, 
and uh, quality of service for the user. Imagine having to stitch back together every bit of information for you to find one piece of a song at the CD. That wouldn't work. Right. <laughs> so uh, we were the first lab to basically perform random access experiments, and we came up with a very simple solution that involves plain vanilla, put it that way, PCR reactions. And our uh, uh, technique was shown to scale to very large data sets by Microsoft. So Microsoft picked up the idea of uh, random access that we have, we had in 2014-15. And um, right now, for example, DARPA started a molecular informatics program where they're asking for developing storage systems along with com uh, DNA computing uh, platforms that would enable random access and other properties. So the next line of work that we tackled after that, again, in order to reduce the cost of the system, was to make the system portable and make uh, reading of the information much more uh, cost efficient. All the solutions before we did this work were designed in such a way that you had to use um, so-called Illumina sequencing machines, which cost a lot of money and are everything except portable. Those were large uh, sequencing devices that are usually housed in labs. And what the, this group here did is to basically come up with the new data encoding and data representation format, which would allow you to uh, read the information stored in DNA using nanopore sequencers, which are traditionally considered to be very, very noise and error prone. And that's true, we saw 10% deletion errors, which is a large amount. You ask any coding theorist, that sounds a, like a scary task mm -hmm. to try to correct that. And that was the problem with the nanopore sequencers. So in, for biological applications, nanopore sequencers have a long way to go because 10% of data missing is or inserted is not acceptable. But in our case, since we are doing coding, we are coding the data in a way that allows you to deal with um, errors of that type. We actually managed to uh, encode several images, uh, one of them being Citizen Kane and other posters uh, into DNA and read them <coughs> in a completely error-free fr uh, form from an older model of Oxford Nanopore R7 here at the Keck Center. And uh, there is no doubt that with the R9 and other models and our coding schemes, you can easily read the data from a device that is roughly the size of a flash. So that's that's in, really important because people keep neglecting those issues that are really of practical value. Can you really buy an Illumina sequencer, keep it in your house? You're talking about half a million dollars or at least several hundred thousand dollars for the sequencer. No one would buy a readout system that expensive. Uh, second, you can't carry it with you. It would have to be in your house. While a nanopore sequencer is, as, as I said, just of the size of a flash, you can bring it everywhere with you, and it's significantly, significantly cheaper. This may be a basic question, but how do, how do you do uh, develop DNA to be able to, to write and, and store on? Um, you know, where, where, where does the DNA come from? Hussein had a very good answer to that question at the conference. Uh, I mean, uh, so how do we get our DNA? Okay. <laughs> I'll let him. I'll let him. <laughs> like, so there are like few steps in the like. Let me explain like what is like. So the DNA-based data storage refers to any scheme that is stored digital data into the base into DNA bases. So to store data, we have to convert digital data first into DNA synthesis uh, DNA ba strings, 
okay. and then order them or like somehow synthesize these fragments. And then later when we want to read data, we sequence all these fragments using different devices. So the short, the short answer, which is what I was hoping he would come up with, is we order DNA. Yeah. We, we, uh, I don't think on campus we have the capability to synthesize DNA, but Hussein did a lot of research uh, about where to find the cheapest DNA online. So we just tell them, uh, we do our data representation conversion from, let's say, binary format to a format that involves a four-letter alphabet, ATGC, which is used in DNA. And then we just send it to companies, and they ship it to us, as Hussein said. <laughs> Writing takes uh, two weeks, depending on the shipping time and the shipping cost expenses. So okay. it's basically something you have to order from a company that would uh, yeah. perform. There the are a few people. companies here in the US, at least, that I know, that you can ask them, like, order your fragments, and they'll send it to you, like, within a Usually they say weeks, but takes like more than like few months. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> and the point is that you can't synthesize anything. So you, that's why, we, like our group as a coding terrorist work, we have to dis we have to come up with DNA strings that they are able to synthesize. This is what we call like constraint coding, kind of technical, but. We usually get like a tube, like different tubes, each, each containing part of our digital data. Later, for one of our experiments, we mixed all these fragments together to test our system and see if it works or not, and then perform a bunch of different exper experiments like um, uh, random access and rewriting. This is actually part of our first experiment. And then later, we did portable readout, we tested like we had these fragments, but this time, as Old mentioned, we tried to read it with like these small devices, which are pretty cheap compared to other like de readout devices. But as she mentioned earlier, you get a bunch of noisy readout. It's like getting noisy images, but somehow you have to recover the original image or the original message from these noisy reads that's we, hopefully we were able to actually recover using our coding schemes and different techniques. So when, the, when this is perfected, what, what will the end result look like for the consumer? Will this be something that will be for, uh, like you mentioned, big label uh, movie companies or, or whatnot? Will, will it be available to the general consumer? And if so, what does... Um, what, is it, what will that look like? I mean, we're used to getting a recordable CD, a recordable DVD is, is sort of the, the norm for the average consumer, uh, potentially. Um, you know, what, what do you see that looking like? Will you, will you buy these at the, at the store? Will you, uh, um, you know, how will people come across that and what, what mode? No, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, as of right now, I don't see your average everyday consumer sort of trading in their existing flash devices for these DNA uh, sequencers or these synthesis machines. What I do see, though, is, you know, potentially uh, companies or uh, governments that have a lot of data that they need to store and they don't need to access that often, I could see them potentially storing things within uh, a DNA-based uh, uh, storage system. Um, so for, like, for me, I think one of the biggest implications is 
you think about how big some of these server farms are today. The fact that like uh, companies like uh, Google are actually going to other states because of uh, um, energy costs being so high and because of the sheer amount of land that you need to have these days to actually store the amount of data that we go through. Um, and again, we don't access this data that often. So the idea is maybe we, you know, you start seeing these server farms sort of not being there anymore and instead you see maybe DNA being stored in some closet, you know, the size of a trunk or a teaspoon, depending on if that article was actually right. Um, and, uh, yeah, to, I mean, to me, that's that's sort of the first place where it would go. Um, I have a hard time sort of seeing it. And not, not to say that it won't, but, you know, you sort of have to, like, limit your uh, line of sight to a certain point. And I see that sort of being, like, the first place I could see a big change. So these would be <clears throat> data, like health records, for instance, or anything that you want to store from a long term that you don't want to lose in more of an archive standpoint, um, wouldn't access them very often, exactly. but they, but you don't want to lose them. You want to make sure that they, um, you know, that's, this seems to be like the real benefit to this technology. Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. So, I mean, uh, Technicolor would be like a great uh, example of a potential company who might want to store information this way. So, I mean, we have plenty of movies from, you know, uh, we've been making movies for a, a very long time, so you know it, it makes sense maybe to have a single backup of all the movies from 1950 to 1920 or, or something along those lines. Again, you wouldn't access it very often, but if you wanted it, it's going to be there, and to uh, replicate the data costs almost nothing, and uh, you don't have to worry about you know some of the existing problems that we were talking about before with some of these traditional uh, storage devices. So how would... Uh how would people access it if they wanted to come come back? Uh, would that be something that they could do online? Would it would it be something that they would actually have to have the physical DNA to be able to do that? Um, let's talk about what that might look like. So it wouldn't be online, unfortunately. And uh, as you probably already formed a uh, picture in your head about this technology, it's not something you can easily put in the cloud. You have to have physical access to DNA. But then, uh, besides the archival storage that we discussed so much, there are other uh, application domains that are exceptionally suitable in this context. For example, data hiding and cryptography. There is nothing better than a DNA media for storing uh, information that is supposed to be delivered in uh, complete secrecy to uh, destination. There are other things that are also possible to do with DNA you cannot do with other media, but unfortunately it's not something you can put in the cloud, at least the cloud as we know it. It would have to be physically present, but then it's so easy to have it phys physically present because we have so much... Uh, uh, so many different places where we can carry a tiny speck of DNA, which is at the level of a nanometer in length if we unwind it as a string. So carrying it around with you is not a big deal. So there maybe shouldn't be even a need for a cloud. If you can carry all the information you need with you beneath your fingernail, why would you care for a cloud? <laughs> you know, and you have, if there is any way to read it in the future really efficiently, the writing would be a one-time process uh, because as Ryan mentioned, um, replicating or amplifying DNA is very straightforward to do because biologists have been doing it forever for various experiments. But it won't be part of a traditional system. I think the point uh, that we are all trying to make is that it's going to require us to have a really major paradigm shift in terms of how we view storage systems. Mm -hmm. But that has happened in the past as well. So 
the crisis we are facing with uh, um, silicon-based uh, electronics and other issues may prompt us to really go that direction, not, not just for storage, but for computing maybe. So if, you, if you're not storing it on a cloud, having it access and it has to be physical, how um, strong is it? You know, how resistant is it to being broken or to fires or whatever else might, might destroy it? So well, since it's usually like the whole like I, I this is my what I think actually since it's like kind of centralized, so all the facilities everything is at, located at a specific place. So in terms of like it's very robust, so you have control over your data. It's not like everywhere like the clouds. So so it's kind of very safe compared to other platform we have because we want safety here. These data that we're storing are probably very important for the person who want to like who order this kind of this platform who wants this platform. So these are usually archival data, which are really we don't want to lose this data. Uh, you should mention uh, uh, you can comment probably on the work in the Zurich group, which was doing DNA encapsulation, and yeah, yeah. so the if you want to yeah. So there is this idea that you can like code the DNA strings. There, like, there is this group in, in ETH Zurich recently, like past, uh, like two years ago, 2015, they had this idea to cover the DNA strings with a layer of silicon. So now it's become very robust against like moisture or temperature or light or any other kind of things that can damage or that can damage DNA strings which cause problem later during when you want to read this data. So it's very robust compared to other platform. There is no single platform, there is no other anything that you can use to store data for thousands of years. But researchers, I mean you can't see if it works after thousand years, but by simulation recently there are groups that simulate, they simulated like uh, harsh environments on DNA and they tested if they can recover DNA if they apply, let's say, like uh, uh, high temperature or, or if they apply humidity to the data and they were able to recover DNA even after exposing the DNA strings to this harsh environment, uh, harsh conditions and environment. So it's very robust, that's what I can say. Well, and the other thing too, like, is you can copy DNA for almost nothing. So that's the other thing too, like, when we think about, like, it's kind of counterintuitive because writing, like, to actually create the DNA strands is a difficult process and it, it's going to cost uh, a certain amount of money. Uh, to read it back is also sort of a difficult process, but to copy the DNA costs almost nothing. Mm -hmm. And you can replicate it an infinite number of times. So I mean, if one of your strands happens to break down, you know, the fact that you can replicate it for almost nothing, you sort of have a built-in mechanism to recover it in the face that there are some types of errors or some types of breakages. Mm -hmm. so. so you would make, you could make hundreds of copies 
of, yeah. of all the data and so put it in different places if you want to or right. you mm -hmm. can store it in, in different conditions so that if one of them gets broken or whatever you still have like 99 others that are out there mm -hmm. and then if one gets broken you just keep replicating it you know so it's not so, really so I, I believe the Technicolor made milli a million copies or something roughly of the size of a million copies of the movie once they synthesized Voyage to the Moon they, they, they easily managed to amplify it and the reason is very simple nature made and designed DNA so that it can be efficiently <coughs> replicated during cell division. That's one of the basic components of the so-called central dogma of uh, um, molecular biology or ge genetics that you can <coughs> easily replicate DNA and you can do it in a parallel fashion because the cell needs to replicate DNA really quickly for the cell to be able to divide and create two copies of the genetic material. And there are many other things that nature, through uh, billions of years of experimentation, came up with to allow information to be transported from one generation to the other. And all this we can harness and use right now for the purpose of trans transporting or transmitting information into the future for our own purposes, not to encode uh, living systems, but our own information, let's say pictures or um, uh, videos or signals that we really care about, something that is important to us. Uh, brings me to a, a, another point about who, who are you consulting with, because um, one of the things that I heard a researcher recently talk about, that the future of research is going to be very much interdisciplinary. Um, you know, we are a high engineering campus, but obviously across engineering disciplines plus you know, um, other disciplines are working on this. And so I, obviously you mentioned the, the biology component. Um, this seems to be the future that you're going across uh, disciplines in terms of uh, developing new technologies. You definitely have to do this. If you want to come up with very exciting new directions like this one, uh, you would have to bring in people that do synthetic biology, like Professor Zhao here on campus. Uh, DNA computing has been up and coming, and then sometimes it would also fade away as a topic, interdisciplinary topic that brought together people that work in computer science, in molecular biology. So all these um, developments in life sciences have an incredible impact on other areas that are traditionally not viewed as being connected to life sciences. Or, and uh, for example, another idea that is being pushed a lot forward these days, and we have quite a few people on campus that are working on it, is how do you store genomic information? If you think of what is the biggest amount of data available right now, you can think it's uh, social science, you can think astronomical data, but uh, most likely genomic data will be the biggest source of big data on the, in research. And then the question is, how do you store it? So some people suggested don't store the data, don't read it and store it in digital form, just store the DNA itself, which is exactly <laughs> what we were trying to do. Or it would bring in so many new interesting problems for in terms of compression and processing of that am amount of data, which is traditionally an area of strength here in, our, in Illinois, information theory. We had information theorists for many, many years that were doing ex exceptionally exciting work, and now maybe it's the time for them to start paying attention to 
bioinformatics because that is, and biology, molecular biology in general, it's an amazing source of interesting problems. And I think I speak for all of us if I say that I never seen more exciting questions mathematically, and people may not see that right away because biology is always viewed as, oh, this is uh, experimental science. There is not much exact reasoning behind it because there are more exceptions than rules. Mm -hmm. But the point is that once you start looking into, you become really surprised, shocked, and pleasantly, <laughs> pleasantly <laughs> surprised, pleasantly surprised that you get the most exciting ideas for uh, exceptionally deep and interesting mathematics. Computer science, obviously, algorithms. So Hussein worked a lot on new alignment algorithms. That was very exciting because people usually do alignment uh, for phyl phylogenetic tree reconstruction for other tasks. And in our case, none of these algorithms worked because we had so many deletions, uh, despite, our, uh, despite the fact that we used uh, a fairly good uh, sequencing platform. And the solution was to add coding and use those markers, these little twists in the representation of the data to make uh, um, alignment algorithms operate really efficiently and accurately. And you cannot do this with uh, native DNA. Native DNA is what it is. The one we synthesize, we can make it do whatever we want for our purpose, meaning we can make it uh, we can synthesize, uh, we can uh, design it in such a way that synthesis becomes cheaper, and this is a really interesting ongoing project that we haven't published on yet, but we hope to be able to do so soon. And uh, we can use DNA in in some modified forms to to deal with the storage problems and computing problems. So all these ideas really come from what we learn from medical science and bioinformatics and uh, molecular biology research, and we wouldn't have these problems if it weren't for that area. So who else are you consulting with, working with? Um, oh, yeah, so the synthetic uh, biology, okay. the synthetic biology group here on campus. Uh, we worked with um, a group in uh, Europe as well, uh, uh, and that group uh, headed by uh, Professor Jean-Francois Lutz, is doing some exceptionally interesting work on storage with polymers. Because there were always these questions, is DNA the best media to use? Mm -hmm. And he had a really interesting new direction in terms of using synthetic polymers, which are very cheap to synthesize. But unfortunately, they have other problems because the, the readout process now becomes a bit more difficult. You, you would have to use either mass spectrometry or, uh, methods or uh, nanopore sequencers, and those are still in devel under development. But um, that group is doing some really exciting work. It's a chemistry group. And uh, other people... Like IDT helped us to... Right. We, so since we don't do the synthesis, there, there might be problems that we're not familiar with, that we don't pay attention enough. So, for example, in one of our work, when we send the data, when we send the, these fragments to these companies for synthesizing, after like a few weeks, they send, it, they send us an email, like, we can't synthesize them because of these issues. So it's really good to like collaborate with different companies so and understand the limits they have because... Uh, part of our work, yeah, is exactly like synthesizing, but since no one on campus do this kind of stuff, so that's why we like contacted like IDT, Origin9, or yeah, different companies. Agilent, yeah. Is this something that you will look to uh, commercialize in the future? 
Um, I mean, that's always the goal, I think, is that in the back of your head you want to do something that people find useful and something that's going to, you know, uh, make a, a difference. And we have, we've gotten some uh, interest, but, uh, you know, as of right now, this is still pretty basic research. Uh, in all honesty, in terms of commercialization, I think we're about 10 years out, uh, optimistically. Yeah. So. You never know. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. True. You like, never know. There could I be always see it, it as like they had CDs in 1960s. Okay, it wasn't like, but it was until ni uh, like 1990, like 85 or 90 that it was it, it becomes something commercial. Mm -hmm. So it takes like because it's not just. It's a interdisciplinary research. There are like parts. It's like a, there are like different parts that need to develop at the same time, and like part of it is synthesis, part of it is readout, sequencing, part of it is like how to store it, how to like commercialize it. So we have part of it, but it's not like we can't say all of them are ready at this time. So we're doing our best to make it like yeah. So, but as an advertisement, I think we filed a patent for our random access and uh, rewritable architecture, the coding solutions that went into it. A, fi a, file, uh, a patent was filed uh, at the beginning last of this year, year or last year, and we had a bunch of provisional patents filed that we are hoping to convert into full-blown patents because it is something that has a future. Mm -hmm. How far, how long do we have to wait? And how many years down the road will it happen? As Hussein <laughs> said, you never know. A technology may seem completely implausible now, but uh, even five years down the road, it may take off with amazing speed. We did not believe, everybody was skeptical that we would ever, ever be able to sequence genomes at the scale we do now. As I mentioned, $3 billion for the Human Genome Project in the early 2000s versus now less than $1,000, probably even less. Uh, to sequence the same genome. That's 15 years and in an incredible reduction in the size, uh, in the cost of the um, experiments. So we never know. As Ryan said, maybe 10 years, but potentially it may take off even faster if something revolutionary happens in the domain of synthesis or uh, avoiding the use of DNA as it is right now directly. Well, as I said at the onset, with the uh, incredible explosion of data, I would think this is something that there had to be a lot of people that have interest and probably others that are that are working on it as well, maybe with collect, uh, collaboratively with you, but um, maybe separately as well. So I would think this is something that will be in high demand. People are skeptical, I guess, rightfully so. They say it takes too much time to get to the point where this will be commercially uh, viable. And we've been also talking to some venture capitalists about where this technology is going and what what needs to happen in order to for people to start believing in it a little bit more than they do now. But I think a positive sign is that all the funding agencies are starting to pick up these ideas. So NSF, I mentioned DARPA, the Molecular Informatics Program, in which we are competing in. Um, uh, NSF is uh, also uh, has also recently brought up uh, to our attention a new program, which is uh, aimed to which is aiming to bring together researchers from different areas and study molecular informatics in one form or another, including storage. So 
there's also this whole area of molecular, molecular communication, which seems at the very, very early stage of development, but it tries also to harness uh, living organisms and properties of living organisms for the uh, purpose of communication rather than computing or storage like people have done so far. Well, thank you very much for uh, all of you for coming in to, to share uh, what you've been working on. Very fascinating. I'm sure we could have probably chatted for another hour and, and, and maybe not got to the surface, but I uh, appreciate uh, everybody coming in, and uh, we look forward to hearing what you have uh, going in the future. Uh, thank you for inviting us. For uh, this. Thank you very much for your thank time. You. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, we've been uh, chatting with Olga Malinchevic. Malinchkovic, uh, the, uh, from the uh, University of Illinois uh, Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, Ryan Gabris, uh, postdoc, uh, and Hussein Yazdi, a grad student uh, in this uh, field of DNA storage. This has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm Mike Kuhn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>